Hi, I'm Darren Steele, and this is Think Queerly. Chapter 36, Gay History Research. The 1970s was a watershed period for Jim in the sense that he found a purpose in life, becoming an architect and foot soldier in the gay liberation movement. It was as though Jim was made for the movement. He was never afraid and ashamed to live his life truthfully as a gay man. As a teenager, he had been willing to risk it all on the open road rather than endure a mental, emotional, and physical strain from his dysfunctional family. He learned quickly that he had to survive by his wits and cast aside any pretense of self-respect in exchange for a hot meal and a warm place to sleep. It was a price he was willing to pay to survive another day. After all of that, Plus, being incarcerated in a Texas prison and forced to work on a chain gang, Jim had decided to turn around his former life. Instead of remaining a helpless victim, he became an activist who placed his destiny in his own hands. With the gay liberation movement gaining momentum, Jim knew he found a cause greater than his past. So on today's show, I'm going to be speaking with the author, biographer of the book, Banned from California, Jim Fauché, Persecution, Redemption, Liberation, and the Gay Civil Rights Movement. Now, Robert shares with us in, in the interview his background, his biography, but I want to read a couple of words of praise uh, from Publishers Weekly and the Kirkus Review about the book. Publishers Weekly said the book was a lively and moving biography, a vital contribution to the history of LGBTQ life and activism in the 20th century America. Fosha's life fascinates and his tales crackle on the page. The book is alive with personal and local stories. And the Kirkus Review said, Steele's excellent organization of his biography adds further insight, bringing the mid-century life of an American gay man into vivid relief and painting a detailed picture of an era when homosexuality was illegal in many parts of the country. Overall, Steele does an excellent job of presenting the story of an activist and making it clear why his story matters. And I believe his story really does matter, that of Jim Foshi. It is a fascinating story. The book is an incredible read. I absolutely enjoyed reading it cover to cover. In fact, I read it over three days. I found it so fascinating. I hope you will enjoy this interview. I'm sure you will. And for all of you history buffs out there, this is a a really wonderful journey into understanding someone who you might not know who experienced a world that in some ways we are still uncovering, the world before Stonewall and what that was like, and the contribution that Jim uh, Fauché made to the LGBT community in his work in the last uh, approximately 20 years of his life. So without any further rambling from me, here is the interview with author Robert C. Steele. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with author, biographer Robert C. Steele of the book Banned from California, Jim Fauché, Persecution, Redemption, Liberation, and the Gay Civil Rights Movement. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. 
Thank you, Darren. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I've listened to some of your podcasts and oh, great. I think you're doing a lot of work out there. Good work. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> that's, that's nice to hear. It's not often the case sometimes when you bring someone on the show that they, they actually uh, listen in uh, to see what they might be facing or dealing with. <laughs> So before we get started into talking about the book proper, I'd love to find out more about who you are, your your background. Um, tell us a little bit about your life in a in a nutshell as best as you can, and your your history or becoming a writer. Okay, certainly. Um, I served as a reporter and a, a journalist uh, most of my life. Mm-hmm. I've uh, worked at various radio and TV stations, and I worked uh, in Italy for the Italian National Broadcasting Company, mm-hmm. which is called RAI, Radio Televisione Italiana, and I was a reporter for Armed Forces Radio. Um, I worked off the coast of Vietnam and in the Asian Western Pacific in, in Italy, and I was a volunteer and activist in the early uh, gay liberation movement mm-hmm. uh, in Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. and with two weekly gay radio shows in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And then finally, uh, later at the end of my career, I worked as a, in the federal government as a public affairs officer. Uh, I served as a government spokesperson and I managed uh, media relations with reporters who worked for media outlets uh, across the USA and around the world. Uh, I've written a lot in my career, but this is the first time I wrote a book, uh, which you can call a long form writing project. Yeah. Well, fantastic. Well, I mean, first of all, congratulations on the book because it's, it was a, I found it to be a fascinating read on a couple of different levels. Um, You know, we are, as you say in the book, as uh, the subject of the book, uh, Jim Fauché, we don't know as much as perhaps we should about our um, gay, gay and lesbian history, like predating what we would call LGBTQ uh, history in the 50s and the 60s before Stonewall. And I've had on the podcast previously uh, my colleague Jeffrey Yovanone, um, who's a, a PhD uh, professor and um, specializes in Buffalo history in this period before Stonewall and interviewing especially uh, elders that are still around or, or using the Madeline Davis archive. So this this subject is definitely of, of interest to me and, and seeing it through the eyes of someone in that you were able to um, collect from interviews and that you um, have had, I guess, uh, some relationship friendship with the subject of your book. So maybe it's a two part question we could get into this. What made you to decide um, to write this biography and how did you come to know Jim? Well, um, Jim lived a very different life than what I've lived. Mm -hmm. Uh, He and I met as activists in the early 1970s gay liberation movement. And at that time, 
all of us thought that we were on the threshold of very positive expectations and we were making exciting strides in this civil gay rights civil rights movement yeah. uh, and we all embarked on it with a lot of positive energy it was a new time of gay militancy and homosexuality was being discussed openly for the mm -hmm. first time by society and the media um, so anyway i interviewed jim on quite a number of occasions in the 1990s but um, i was working at the time and i didn't want to work my life away by not only working eight hours a day but then coming home and working on this book at nights and on weekends so yeah. i put it on the back shelf and uh a couple of decades later wow um, after i did the series of interviews for band from california i retired and i then earnestly began writing the book uh, about six or seven years ago i realized that I had to start getting banned from California written and published. I, mm -hmm. I absolutely could not let this story be lost to history. It was too important a story that I felt absolutely had to be told and offered to people. Yeah. And uh, even though banned from California is a biography about Jim's life, it's really a, a lot more than that. It's a look at a certain time in our history and the culture and history of the LGBTQ civil rights movement mm -hmm. serves as a backdrop for Jim's life and all of his many, many travels. And we see 70 years of uh, gay culture through the eyes of this gay American. Mm -hmm. You know, mo most LGBTQ history books or gay history books are written in a more academic style and a lot of readers find that style to be somewhat hard to plod through and a little dry. So instead, uh, speaking of what you said a few moments ago, I wrote Band from California in a first person, you are their style. Yeah. And a lot of readers have told me that it makes it a very easy read and a lot more captivating read. So I'm honored to hear a lot of the wonderful feedback from people who've read the book. And I've even had people tell me that they shed tears in certain parts of the story and laughed out loud in <clears throat> other parts. So Banned from California is beginning to get quite a track record in the public consciousness. And I'm happy that uh, the people are loving the book. Well, you, it's as if you had read my next question, because I was going to ask you about the narrative structure. Um, and it starts reading like a pulp fiction novel. And it just immediately grabbed me when I was reading it. So I think I, the book arrived uh, on a Saturday of all days, uh, by by post and um, just sat down and like, bam, I was 50 pages in and it's like, oh, I don't want to stop. And then I was reading it in bed and I read it the next day and I literally read it over three days because, well, one, I was compelled, I was preparing uh, for the podcast, but it was that kind of a read, almost like, oh, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen now? 
and then sort of recognizing in that moment, but wait, this is not fiction. This is the stuff that, you know, authors like Felice Picano, um, who writes fiction, has told in his fictional accounts, you know, um, in his stories or other gay fiction authors have alluded to from that period of time. But this was real life. And you have, or at least I had this moment of, how did this guy keep it all together with everything that he endured, which we're going to get into. Um, so I, whatever made you to just decide to do that, it certainly made it more approachable. And maybe you could speak to the nonlinear nature of the book and, and how you think that tells the story in a more approachable or uh, memorable way. I think the book is successful generally because I was able to interview Jim for mm -hmm. hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And I used a lot of what he said in the book as a first person narrative, as he tells his story. Mm -hmm. And I fill in the blanks to provide the structure of the book. And uh, I took his interviews and transcribed them. And uh, then I cut them up and uh, you know, when you're interviewing somebody for weeks or months and various times, they'll come back to a story yeah. and they'll repeat it or tell it again, forgetting what they said before. Mm -hmm. And those interviews <clears throat> tend to be a little bit different than the interviews previously. And they fill in some blanks that they did not say before. So I had to kind of uh, put those to together and uh, make it work in a chronological format. Mm -hmm. And uh, I am so glad that I interviewed him all that time because had I not, I could not have remembered all of this. And I don't think uh, I would have ended up uh, being able to write the book to tell you the truth. Mm -hmm. I've uh, I've never worked on a, a book before. I never aspired to be a book author. I was always interested in journalism and reporting. And this book is uh, almost like a, a giant uh, news article mm -hmm. in a way. <clears throat> yeah, and it, it has that feel. Maybe that's kind of the, the pulp fiction feel that I, I allude to in that it, um, <clears throat> It's almost very episodic. Uh, some of the chapters are shorter and some of the chapters are longer. And like you said, it goes back and forth, but more pieces of the puzzle are filled in in this way. <clears throat> and, and I use the word memorable in a more memorable, but also uh, painterly sort of way. Like you really get a sense of, you know, he didn't have an easy life, but you get a sense of the richness of his life from from the sense of the amount of experience uh, that he had. And, you know, the recurring theme in his life, at least according to his own words, as you transcribe them, is that he never gave up. And I, I wonder, you know, he wasn't necessarily born an activist. Uh, he was born, I think, what was it in the... Uh, the, the 30s or the 40s? Yes, he was born in 1939. So 39. But 
you quote him as saying that he never wanted to hide who he was, even at like 12, 13, 14, he knew he was different. He, you'll have to tell me whether or not he actually identified as gay. Uh, but somehow he managed to rise above all the traumatic experiences uh, to then eventually become this gay rights activist when he sort of settled down, I guess, in Denver. But tell tell me more about that formation of identity, that that pride he somehow had in himself long before we gave the name of pride to, you know, gay pride or LGBTQ pride. Well, at 15 years old, he ran away from his abusive home in Idaho. Mm -hmm. And he landed in 1950s Los Angeles and the underground world of homosexuals and early queer culture. Mm -hmm. And he unwittingly ended up eyewitness to the beginnings of uh, this gay civil rights movement. And uh, in this book banned from California, readers experience Jim's adventures and misadventures mm -hmm. and we live history seen through the eyes of this gay American. Um, the book does tell what I believe is a very entertaining but true story. It's a historical coming of age story and a lifelong biography. Um, in the 1950s and beyond, Jim Fauché and other homosexuals and endured quite a lot. Uh, as the movement for gay civil rights and equal mm -hmm. rights begin, and readers see that uh, see the price that people paid for breaking society's rules and yeah. norms and and laws. Um, anyway, his uh, his escape from Idaho. Uh, he sets out on an adventure that redefines his life. Uh, spanning a half century of uh, history and uh, banned from California includes a lot of anecdotes of people Jim met and places he traveled. Uh, he met drag queens and hustlers and good cops and bad cops mm -hmm. as well as his brushes with the beats, the hippies and uh, the early 1970s gay liberation culture. There's, um, there's two points I want to come to. I want to, second point, I want to touch on the, the magazine one and the history of that and some of his involvement with getting his news and information about the culture. But I wanted to first touch on, um, you know, I was fascinated and repulsed at the same time by the religious hypocrisy of his mother in her actions. Like she changed churches a couple of times so that she could remarry, being in one that said you can't remarry, and yet being such a harsh critic of of Jim and until her until the last time he ever spoke with her, her saying that he was going to burn in hell for his sins. Like she never changed her opinion about that, yet she didn't realize her own, like I said, hypocrisy. And it's it's sad. It's we see this still to this day. Um but I would sort of interject before I stop the documentation of the religiosity that he grew up with and this um cross-country preaching 
um, was, you know, I hadn't seen that much. I hadn't read that much about um, what was happening at that time and how they were trying to spread the the word of the the Lord through uh, through the states at that time. Yeah, Jim. Because of all of this, he was skeptical about religions mm -hmm. and about even New Age spirituality, and yeah. he was skeptical about atheism, whatever the various beliefs that people latched on to. I think a lot of this was due to what he saw firsthand from people who latch on to theories and religion mm. and um, various uh, uh, philosophies, and a lot of it a lot of it had to do with his first uh, stepfather who thought that his lot in life was to save this uh, fallen world from the devil. And mm -hmm. so the way he, <clears throat> he parceled out what you would call what most people, uh, wouldn't think of it, but uh, his discipline amounted to beating the devil out of uh, Jim yeah. and his sister. And you have to understand, it wasn't Jim that was doing what he was doing. It was the devil. So his stepfather had to beat the devil out of the two kids. And that made a lasting impression on him his entire year, uh, his entire life. There's um, I want to read from a, a section of the book. Um, it, it just speaks to what you were saying, and you were quoting him. And Jim is saying, "I became guarded against religious beliefs and dogma, whether it was Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Wicca, atheist, or whatever theory or superstition or religion that people latched on to." Um, but the next paragraph, this is on page one ninety five of the book. Uh, you quote him, he says, I think there's a lot more to this world than meets the eye, things that can hardly be perceived. Humans have a primal desire to understand why the world is here, what's beyond our perceptions of the world, why we are, why are we here, and what happens to us after death. Nobody knows for sure. Humans align themselves with all sorts of beliefs, especially those they're indoctrinated to while growing up. Not everybody can be right. Each person truly is guessing what if, sorry, what it is all about. I think every individual should be free to believe however they see the world as long as they don't try to harm anyone else. I discovered that people could be upstanding through moral codes and be decent people without having to choose to believe a particular religion or tenant. If you just want to speak a little bit more to that, I found that to be such a, a, a simple, eloquent, and, and wise observation on, on his part. And, you know, it says a lot, given when this comes later on in the book, after you've read all about his experiences, as you've described. He did think that people uh, should be free mm -hmm. to believe how they wanted. He had friends who were into religion and new age philosophies, uh, especially his wonderful close friend, Bailey Whitaker, Dr. Whitaker. And, um, but he just was not into uh, latching on to any one certain philosophy or religion. 
and uh, he was a free thinker. Mm-hmm. His mother, um, she was like a lot of people way back then. They listened to uh, preachers that were on small time radio stations. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, this was long before the big mega corporations uh, got into the lucrative religious broadcasting and they listen uh, to radio uh, those people and it was uh, quite a different time his mother thought that uh, she thought like a lot of religious people that her religion was the right one and that uh, people in other religions were uh, going to hell uh, mm-hmm. even the uh the baptists and the catholics mm-hmm. uh she thought that uh, they were all going to hell uh jim challenged her and and said yes but the the pope and the nuns do a lot of good work and she said well they may mean well but uh they're all going to hell her worldview had very few people living in heaven <laughs> yeah, except her and her religion, yes. <laughs> yes. And a lot of people were like that back then. And may I say that uh, I've known quite a few people nowadays who are still like that. Yeah. That their belief is the right one. Yeah. And uh, I know one uh, guy, uh, he and his mother argued all the time because he was one religion and she was the other. And mm-hmm. they thought each other uh that they were right and the other one was wrong it's it's too bad so getting into the the second question um there you were actually able to fill in some more gaps so to speak around some of the very early publications like one magazine and you know we know um historically some of the information about uh what um how long these magazines lasted, who was in part, but getting whenever we can get more information through another person's testimony, like like Jim's, it's it's always very fascinating. Maybe tell us more about the there was a pivotal moment at the uh, Supreme Court with one and how maybe that also impacted um, Jim and and at that time and what that was all about. OK, well, uh... This is a true turning point in these times at the rise of the the gay press. Mm -hmm. It was really a radical new type of publication that permeated the entire fledgingly uh, gay civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, One magazine first began publishing in 1953. It was uh, the first enduring gay publication on this continent mm-hmm. and it was about the size of readers digest but it had fewer pages only about oh two or three dozen pages per issue mm-hmm. but by 1957 about 3000 monthly copies were printed and they were sold through subscriptions and also sold at newsstands and uh, as i said it essentially marked the true beginning of the gay press because one positioned itself into the forefront of the emerging gay rights movement. 
and it awakened homosexuals and most straight people were unaware of one mm-hmm. one magazine mm-hmm. but straight people who had paid attention to it were scared by the magazine because now instead of finding a communist behind every bed they were finding a queer there so anyway a couple of years after one started publishing the u.s post office impounded the magazine's october 1954 edition it called the magazine obscene and filthy Mm -hmm. and the post office absolutely refused to deliver one through the mail. So one took the post office to court in Los Angeles and they lost. The judge ruled that the magazine was calculated to stimulate the lust of homosexual readers. So one appealed the judge's ruling to the US Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and they lost again. Uh, The appeals court ruled that Articles in the magazine were nothing more than cheap pornography, that it was morally depraved and debased, even though one kept the magazine very clean and didn't put anything in it that, that uh, was dirty. So anyway, uh, after these two legal setbacks, one staff members were dejected and dispirited but one's attorney wanted to take their court case, of all things, uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And although one's staff members were pessimistic, they okayed their attorney's action. Okay, go ahead. And then the Supreme Court handed down its ruling. It did not even hear oral arguments. But the U.S. Supreme Court ruled unanimously in one's favor of all things and so the high court reversed the two lower court opinions and it essentially ruled that one magazine's discussion of homosexuality was not obscene it was an exercise of free speech that homosexuals had the same right of freedom to the press as anybody else and this was uh, the first legal victory for homosexuals uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And that important landmark decision actually made it possible for homosexual publications to exist, Mm -hmm. uh, which allowed the equal rights for homosexuals movement to develop and advance. And one magazine fought and won that critical, crucial initial battle. Yeah, it's a very remarkable, um, you said right at the beginning, some people had said who had read your book, they teared up at certain points. And there's, there's, even though I'm Canadian, it's still, it's a moment, a transformational moment in our LGBTQ history to be able to get, first of all, unanimous ruling is, is such a big deal. Um, in the, of course, our Supreme Court back then was very liberal. And now uh, it's turned 180 degrees. It's a very, very conservative Supreme Court. And we're looking at uh, a lot of change in our laws that are in the offing. Yeah. 
Yeah, sometimes history is cyclical in in certain ways. You know, it's not a repeat of what happened, but we start to see um, it's it's kind of like a, a I wouldn't say it's a rebalancing. It's kind of a yin and a yang. Sometimes you know we sort of see the dark, and then we see the light, and then we see somewhere gray in between. But how did that affect Jim per se? What did he tell you in uh, some of your interviews with him? That that ruling and the impact of that magazine on Jim and his connection with the um, community, quote unquote. Well, everybody in Los Angeles at the time uh, in the homosexual underground uh, learned about that ruling mm -hmm. and they all talked about it. And uh, life was tough for homosexuals yeah. back then because in the 1950s during the McCarthy era, mm -hmm. you had U.S. Senator Joseph McCarthy embarking on a highly publicized quest to rid the government of communists and homosexuals. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S. House of Representatives, they had the House Un-American Activities Committee that also investigated communists and homosexuals. And also, President Dwight Eisenhower issued an executive order declaring that sexual perversion was grounds for homosexuals to be fired from their jobs. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, Jim lived an openly gay teenage life in the 1950s, mm -hmm. even though during that time, it was seen as criminal behavior and banned from California places Jim's story within the context of the gay civil rights movement during the Cold War, the Cold War and McCarthyism because uh, gay America was in the shadows back then, as was uh, uh, gay Canada. Yeah. And it was a secret subculture back then with its own clubs and customs and code words. And Jim dated older men. Yeah. And he thought that the word gay was cool to use. Yeah. But that put off some of the older guys he dated because they thought that Jim and other younger guys were ruining a perfectly good code word by popularly using gay. Mm. And that before long, guys would be afraid to ask anybody if they were gay because everybody else would have learned what gay meant. Yeah. Uh, it, it, even whenever he left a, a bar with a guy, they'd end up walking two or three blocks to the older guy's car because uh, nobody ever parked next to a gay bar yeah. because these men usually had good jobs and did not want their livelihoods to be threatened uh, by an arrest. Yeah. So it was a, uh, a tough time back then. Well, speaking to that, there's a there's a section um, in, in the book where I think Jim says, um, I don't know if it was around the same time or before he started just asking, is that person gay? Uh, he was referencing the magazine one that people would say, is he one? Meaning, That's right. He, he, uh, uh, he and his friends, which were mainly teenage gay people, uh, some. <clears throat> had places to live and some were on the lamb, so mm -hmm. to speak. And 
Some were what you'd call nowadays on the streets. And uh, he and his friends, uh, the jargon they used uh, was not really, when when they saw other people, uh, they would ask each other, is he one rather than is he gay? Mm -hmm. Uh, It shows how the lexicon changes through uh, uh, the decades, especially uh, gay jargon. And uh, that's how they identified. And probably um, that's why they identified with the name of the magazine, One. Uh, Is he one? Yeah. Well, there's um, quite a lot of detail in Band from California about um, Jim's institutionalization in an orphanage as a very young child and then commitment to a mental hospital, which he was in and out of a number of times, um, at least once or twice forced in by his mother for quote unquote, homosexual deviant behavior during his teenage years. But it's ironic in the interviews I had with him that he felt the most accepted in that institution. That's right. Uh, let me talk a little bit about his institutionalizations. Yeah. Uh, he was first institutionalized when his mother placed him and his old sister uh, in an orphanage when he was three years old. And uh, at the time, Jim's older sister, Ruthie, was eight years old. Uh, she'd already experienced the loss of her daddy, who had died the year before. Mm-hmm. And uh, then in the orphanage, uh, Ruthie had to deal with the emotional trauma of being alone in a strange place with, without either parent. But Jim was so young at three years old at the time, hmm. uh, he told me he really did not remember anything about entering the orphanage. So he didn't remember how he initially dealt with it. His mother had put both of the kids there because she had prayed to God and decided that uh, that he wanted her to go out and travel the church circuit and preach the gospel. Mm-hmm. So after about three years of that uh, and three years that the kids spent in the orphanage, Jim's mother brought the kids back to live with her and they settled in together. But Jim couldn't remember anything about his mother before living in the orphanage. Uh, He said that she seemed like a nice lady, but he could not remember anything about her. And he told me he did not think that he really was capable of bonding with his mother because he'd already lived half of his life at the orphanage without his mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, she married Jim's first stepfather, whose discipline, as I said, that he metered out amounted to beating Jim and his sister. So this apparently happened so often that Jim, uh, during one particular three-day period, ran away from home every day. So then about the age 13, Jim was placed in a reform school Mm -hmm. to correct those runaway tendencies and other incorrigible behavior. And uh, the older for his dear life to be more like it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, 
in that reform, it was interesting. In that reform school, the older juvenile delinquents took sexual advantage of Jim, mm -hmm. and Jim felt that he couldn't tell these older guys no. They were a lot older and a lot stronger than he was. So they just took what they wanted from Jim. Mm -hmm. And then the reform school staff found out that a lot of the older teenagers were having sexual encounters with Jim. And the house fathers thought that Jim was at fault and told him that he was a bad influence on the older juvenile delinquents. So the training school's medical staff determined that Jim was mentally ill mentally ill with severe social maladjustment problems and they transferred the 14 year old out of the reform school and into Idaho State's mental hospital and from then through the rest of his teenage years Jim lived mainly at that institution uh, the Idaho mental hospital was a fairly progressive medical institution during the 1960s and they eventually concluded that Jim was not mentally ill but their main concern was that they were afraid Jim was becoming institutionalized mm -hmm. at that mental hospital and they tried various techniques to integrate him back into society however Jim was a lot more comfortable away from home and away from society and he could not wait to get back to the mental hospital where his real friends lived. Mm. And he couldn't be truthful and tell people outside the hospital who he really was, because after all, not only was he gay and running off to California, but he was living most of his teenage life in a mental institution. Mm. Stigma upon stigma, Nick. <laughs> Well, yeah. and being institutionalized, uh, in, you know, that's a, 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 a big part of his life, because what was it at um, 22 years old, he was then imprisoned, you'll have to tell us why, but there's so much detail in those sections of the book of what prison life was like and working on a chain gang in Texas in 1960. And it's just remarkable that he even lived to get out and tell the story. Maybe you could tell us more about that. Uh, okay. Uh, a few chapters in Band from California cover the time that Jim spent in prison. Mm -hmm. And in the book, we learn a lot about Jim's upbringing as a chronic runaway from his dysfunctional family, as I said. <clears throat> and so in my reporting in the book, it details his repeated placement in institutions. So it really was almost a foregone conclusion in a lot of ways that mm -hmm. he would eventually end up in prison. And uh, in prison, there were a lot of hardened prisoners there and a lot of dangers. Yeah. Uh, he, he served on a prison farm where he toiled on a chain gang and in the summertime, life was miserable there. Uh, mm. Jim and the other chain gang prisoners were forced to endure backbreaking work. Uh, the prisoners sweated under the hot blazing sun 
as they work the ground, uh, digging trenches and building irrigation structures and harvest, harvesting crops. And the work itself was physical abuse. They constantly worked and could not stop. Uh, but uh, Jim was the closest thing to a lady out there on the chain gang that the uniformed field bosses and guards had ever seen out there. So for uh, boss and for Jim, it became a regular routine. Uh, boss would sit on his horse, bored out of his mind, mm. and he'd call Jim forward and gripe about Jim's work methods. Uh, keep his hoe near the ground when he hoed. Don't bend his legs when he scraped the irrigation ditch. Keep his feet apart when he shoveled and on and on. Yeah. But uh, boss concluded pretty quickly that he was not going to be successful making Jim into a masculine laborer. So Jim was forced to endure that life on the chain gang and in the prison farm. And then after the chain gang, Jim eventually was transferred to the main prisoners where he was segregated with other queer prisoners in an area called Queen's Row. And he was confined there in a solitary jail cell all by himself. Yeah. And uh, the Queens were kept separate from the Bulls, but that only ended up depriving the straight prisoners of effeminate Queens for passionate sex. So the Bulls ended up terrorizing young masculine straight guys who they coerced to get sex. Mm -hmm. And uh, to getting to know Jim was difficult for most guys in prison because the guards maintained a very close watch over him. And whenever the, jar, whenever the guards escorted Jim throughout the walls to appointments, he'd flirt around and blow kisses to the other uh, prisoners to make them feel good. And in turn, they'd wink at him and make wolf whistles. So Jim acquired a lot of boyfriends throughout the prison who communicated him through love notes. And those love letters were secretly passed back and forth by uh, runners who swept and mopped the tears and delivered food trays. And the runners also uh, wheeled carts to prisoners that contained commissary like soap and towels and cigarettes and newspapers and stuff. So Jim's so-called boyfriends would send him those love letters and uh, little commissary gifts that Jim thought he needed so he could better endure prison life. It's such a, uh, it is, uh, that's why I go back to the Pulp Fiction thing. I mean, it, it, it was very funny in parts, you know, the way in which he was sort of uh, playfully, queenly like taunting, um, but in a, desired way and as is made clear in the book i'm you know he thought that he was going to try and find someone who could be his quote-unquote lover in prison but as soon as the people who were in charge realized that that would be the case they're like no we're just not going to have that <laughs> but you know he certainly had a sense of humor that allowed him to move forward in life and then to you know be on his best behavior so he was able to get out early but there's 
so many situations you document um, in which, you know, the uh, gays, lesbians and trans people at that time stood up to police over the decades prior to uh, the Stonewall riots in 69. And your accounting of the police harassment and their attitudes towards queers is it's it's unsettling, not not how you account it. It's just unsettling because it's unsettling that people acted like that and many people still do. And Jim faced the police a lot. And that's also where the name of this book came from. So maybe you could f tell us the story of Band from California and how that originated. When he was uh, 15, he escaped home and he hitchhiked 800 miles to California. And he met a wonderful drag queen, uh, who felt sorry for him and took him into her house. And Jim felt wonderful because he got his own bedroom uh, and in the room next to the bedroom was his older friend, uh, the drag queen, Bunny, whose watchful eye looked over him and uh, took care of him. Bunny, had a partner, a lover, uh, and he was gone to Montana at the time to visit relatives for, I think it was two or three weeks. So Bunny decided on her own <clears throat> to, uh, to bring Jim, the, the, that teenager, into her home and uh, give him refuge. Uh, from the streets, but when when Bunny's lover returned home, he was kind of floored that here was this teenager, yeah. and uh, he was a little paranoid about having some underage kid in his house. So he told Bunny that the, this uh, kid absolutely had to go. Mm -hmm. So Jim was essentially kicked out on the streets and he had spent the little bit of money that he had and figured, well, it was time to hightail it back to Idaho and back home and back to the mental hospital. Yeah. And so he decided he'd hitchhike and, but the, the freeway system and all the interchanges uh, back then were hard to negotiate. He felt that if he was only able to get out of the LA area, then he could easily hitchhike the rest of the way home. <clears throat> and he went to uh, a popular park and he saw uh, a cop there. And he remembered his mother said, a policeman is always your best friend always count on the police to help. So he went uh, up to the policeman and asked the policeman uh, if he could get a ride out of town so he could hitchhike back home. And of course, this cop uh, realized that he was a runaway mm -hmm. and he took him down to the main police station. And it ended up that a couple of juvenile detectives uh, interviewed Jim and they got him to cough up a lot of information about where he had been 
and uh, they put him in a juvenile uh, jail, and he was there for I'm not sure how long, and a number of weeks, and uh, they finally took him to uh, a Dallas court, and Jim thought, okay, I'm going to be uh, tried, and uh, my case will come up, and uh, they took him into this big uh, courtroom, and they asked Jim about his time in Los Angeles, and there he saw Bunny in the front row, mm. along with her her uh, lover, and he realized what the court was trying to do that uh, they were not trying to prosecute prosecute Jim, mm. but they were on the outlook to get Bunny, or especially her lover uh prosecuted for um sexual relations for uh, corrupting a youth so jim found out about that and during the questioning he yelled out no it didn't happen the police made me say it and the the whole courtroom erupted and the judge said are you sure what you're saying and the prosecutor told the judge, we have a signed statement from this witness. And the judge called a recess and he wanted to see Jim in his private offices. And Jim went back there uh, with a social worker and the judge started ranting at him saying, you're a disgrace. I cannot real believe that you're trying to protect this man we could have sent him up for years mm -hmm. and uh the judge said now we can go back into court and we can disregard your earlier testimony and jim said no i won't do it and the judge blew his top and said you can never come back here i ban you from the state of california wow. and jim was so young at that time that he didn't know if the judge could actually ban him from a state. And he assumed that he was banned from California. And the judge said, now you go home to your parents and you stay there. It's it's shocking in a way, some of the parallels uh, from, from the history of Jim's life uh, compared with the challenges that we face today. And, you know, while we've, we've come, at least in North America and other countries in Europe, we've come a long way with respect to our rights and inclusion and acceptance. What do you think is the, the kernel of Jim's story that we can learn uh, about our, our struggle that still exists today on certain levels for LGBTQ civil rights? Well, uh, Jim told me that uh, almost every gay person he'd ever known has suffered to some extent at the hands of their heterosexual parents yeah. and uh, his childhood and teen years clearly qualified him as a, an abused child at the hands of his fundamentally religious mother and his sadistic first stepfather and Jim's move to Denver uh, coincided with a new robust national discourse on homosexuality 
That was 1969, and mm -hmm. the Stonewall Uprising occurred right after Jim arrived in Denver, and the counterculture movement was growing, and <clears throat> gay rights groups were organizing across the country. So Jim decided to get involved and found a cause worth living for. And Jim was no longer at the mercy of the persecution around him. And he now took control of his own life by putting his destiny in his own, own hands. And I think that uh, provides a good example to people nowadays to get involved and put your destiny in your own hands and you'll feel a lot better about yourself and your situation as Jim felt about himself and his situation. Well, sort of not to wrap things up at this point, but it's a great transition to um, kind of like the last 20 years or so, I guess, of his life when he moved to Denver and he had his first lover and he worked on um, helping some various LGBTQ organizations, a publication, uh, a radio show. And then he became something of an archivist, um, helping out uh, Jim Kepner, who eventually founded the National Gay Archives, or that became a name after it was name something else earlier and doing research for Jonathan Ned Katz. Tell us a little bit about that period of his life. I, the way I read the book, the way you've written it is like, that's almost the point where something settled and maybe it was like you just described suddenly this now open dialogue around uh, LGBTQ civil or gay lesbian civil rights and and how he was able to participate and help given his life experience uh, he was very good at research he started reading books way back of all things in in the um, <clears throat> orphanage mm -hmm. and he said that's why he thought that that he ended up being a speed reader uh, after he left home and was out on his own he loved going to libraries and he would check out a dozen books at a time and within a week or so he'd have them all read and would return them uh, and get another dozen wow. so he was a voracious reader and that came in real handy uh researching uh he first met uh his friend Terry Mangan, who uh, was a fellow uh, activist in Denver, and he was a professional uh, historian, uh, the first one that Jim met, and Jim got captivated by that, and then a couple of years later, Jim found a curious want ad in The Advocate, which at that time was the largest and most influential uh, LGBT or gay publication then. And the ad was asking for researchers. Mm -hmm. And so Jim responded to the ad and it ended up having been placed by Jonathan Ned Katz. And he was looking for people that 
could do a little bit of research and help him uh, with research activity at other places around the country. And uh, he wanted to do that for his new book that was coming out in a year or two called Gay American History. So Jim started researching and he actually started researching with one, but uh, Jonathan uh, thought that one and other homophile publications were very common resources. And so once Jim uh, realized that, he decided he would research through decades of old newspapers and hundreds of books. And he found uh, quite a lot. And uh, Jonathan Katz was quite happy with uh, Jim's work. And so he sent him uh, more requests. Uh, one of them was uh, a request that uh, Jonathan wanted to find out more about uh, a colonel in the uh, Revolutionary Army, yeah. uh, von Steuben. And he wanted to find out, uh, get some documentation that, uh, that the general was uh, a homosexual and that he had heard rumors about that. And Jim found this old book that uh, talked about the general and, uh, and some of the legal documents of the time. But Jim said that uh, in the uh, two world wars, World War I and World War II, that those documents obviously had uh, been lost or destroyed in some way, mm -hmm. but they had this old book that they could um, rely on. And since then, uh, here, oh, three, four decades later, uh, people have been able to dig up more information <clears throat> on General von Steuben. Mm -hmm. And um, Jim was a natural uh, researcher. He loved it. And he ended up doing that the rest of his life. He worked in academia and did research for professors and corporations. Uh, and finally, during the last couple of decades of his life, he became a very, success, uh, very successful and well-known and reliable researcher. It's interesting to read a book like this about someone who you could almost call an unsung hero in a way. Um, not somebody who is so much the forefront, you know, at the front of the parade, uh, you know, face on the front of a magazine or a masthead or something. I mean, there are some times I think where, you know, people knew who he was, um, but a supporter and the, and an observer and amazing that he had such a good memory it makes me wonder just like a random question uh like is and for like the the historians out there like did jim save any of like for example the love notes from prison or did they have to be destroyed because he must have amassed 
quite a lot of archival material from his own life. He uh, he had to destroy uh, all of the love letters in prison because mm -hmm. they were contraband. Yeah. So as soon as he read them, he would tear them up in small pieces and flush them down the toilet. But uh, Jim's gay research, he has thousands and thousands of pages of gay research mm -hmm. and uh, i have those and i wanted to uh by now uh donate all of those yeah. to probably the denver public library yeah um, their western <laughs> history department but because of covid uh i and my husband have stayed close to home and we have not done any traveling we're both way up there in age and <clears throat> not in the best of health it's interesting that uh 40 years ago my friends were dying of uh, aids i yeah. lost about half of my friends at that time and here it is now 40 years older <clears throat> and uh my friends and are uh, passing on from old age diseases. Yeah. So uh, we have to be especially careful in this pandemic. And so we haven't gone really hardly anywhere, but uh, sometime in the next few months, if possible, I want to uh, <clears throat> uh, get to Denver for us to go there and haul all of Jim's uh, archival um, materials and donate them to either the Denver Public Library or perhaps um, the old uh, Colorado Historical Society, which is now called History Colorado. Right. Wonderful. What would be... Was there a particularly meaningful or moving moment for you in 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 the work over the years of this book um or what was what was the the drive that that made you want to do this i'm looking for you know you know this is a testament i guess in a way what what you've accomplished in your life um but was there a moment where some some light bulb went off or some some awareness as a result of focusing on this work well i had had it uh on the back shelf so to speak for uh a couple of decades and as i said i all of a sudden realized that this story is too important uh, a lot of people like the story because it's about just a normal guy yeah uh but because of what it shows about our history during the last half of the 1900s, um, I knew that I could not let this story be lost to history. It was uh, an important story that absolutely had to be told. And uh, that's when the light bulb went off, get down and get busy and, and write this. And uh, it's interesting. I had read uh, an article about, uh, this guy wrote an article about, so you want to write a book. Mm -hmm. And what his 
premise in that article was was that um, you know maybe a thousand people want to write a book, but only about a uh, hundred of them have the capability of writing a book, mm -hmm. and of those hundred, maybe only one or two will actually finish a book because they get sidelined or it gets put on the back shelf. And I thought, well, that certainly describes me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so he said, if you're going to write a book, make sure that you work on it every day. Uh, you don't have to work long about it. Uh, even if you work two minutes or yeah. five minutes, during one day that's fine but sit down and uh and work on it and so that's what i did some days i would only sit down maybe five minutes but actually they were uh, few and far between once i sat down at the desk uh you kind of get on a roll yeah. and that was uh absolutely wonderful advice yeah, well, the idea of, of taking the pressure off of how many words or how many hours for a project like that, instead, it focuses on the, the nurturing and the cultivation of the work. So that even if you are only able to, say, manage the five minutes, then you at least have the ideas alive in your mind and the back of your mind, your unconscious, your subconscious, what have you, can can work on, on these ideas. Any, yeah. uh, go ahead. And I was just going to say that uh, the book took a little bit out of me. Yeah. Um, I worked on it, uh, writing and editing and uh, having it uh, get published. Uh, that all took about six or seven years, in addition to the time I spent decades ago yeah. interviewing Jim. And... Um, as I said before, I never really aspired to be a book author. I was always a lot more interested, and I worked in uh, journalism and reporting and radio and television. And uh, I probably never would have uh, written this book had it not been for the fact that I knew that I couldn't let it get lost to history. And uh, so I wrote this book. And to tell you the truth, um, I think I'm retired for good now. I <laughs> don't have any aspirations to write another book or to go back to work reporting. So I'm truly finally retired uh, with my husband now. Well, it's an amazing book, an amazing accomplishment. Um, it's a wonderful read. It's an informative read. It's educational and it just uncovers um, so many different aspects of uh, a history that I didn't know about. Um, like for example, the prison system and like the, the, the uh, preaching on the road of his mother um, at the time. So thank you for putting that all together. And, you know, any any parting words or what, you know, I'll leave all the information in, in the show notes and on my posts so that people can find you. But what's the best um, place for people to find you or to at least order your book so that, uh, you know, the profits well, go to you. 
the book uh, has a website. Mm-hmm. It's called bandca.com. And Perfect. band is B-A-N-N-E-D. And CA, of course, stands for California. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's all sorts of things on the website. And there's a link to ordering the book. You could also uh, order it at various booksellers and uh, bookstores uh, on the continent. And uh, of course, uh, people could go to uh, amazon.com and order it off of there and have it delivered right to your home. Yeah, and just a, another mention, there's a, quite a number of archival photos in there. So it's, uh, you know, for people wondering, it's a wonderful book. So, Robert, I really appreciate you making the time to speak with me today. Thank you for a great read. And uh, I appreciate such a informative interview as well. Thank you, Darren. Um, it's honored to be on your podcast because, as I said, uh, you're doing a lot of good out there in the podcast sphere. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you.